Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today for what is my favorite episode of the year. No offense to any of the other amazing guests that we have, but we're back for a second time with Dr. Vera Rajagopal, who's a scientist at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and is famous for his tweet threads. He's at Dr. Vera on uh, Twitter, and he also has a Substack with longer form stories called Jiwa's Stories, and I really recommend you follow him on Twitter and subscribe if you're interested in this kind of thing. But he has uh, an incredible knowledge of all the latest and greatest in genetics and drug discovery. And if you remember our episode from last year, uh, we covered some of the biggest stories of 2022, and now we're back again in 2023. And it has been a really interesting and amazing year. So Vera, first of all, thanks for agreeing to come back, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Patrick. So I think I should start by saying that I'm a big fan of Genetics Podcast. I've been like listening to most of it. It's incredibly informative. Uh, so it's a honor to be here again. And thank you for the invite. Uh, looking forward to our discussion of uh, 2023. Exciting Human Genetics Roundup. Yeah, it really is my pleasure. I think one of the great things about having this podcast, I get to talk to people who are have just incredible knowledge of the field and I get to learn by osmosis. Uh, and for you, this has been a big year. You published quite a significant paper that I suspect you probably worked on for a number of years looking at rare variant involved in smoking or lack thereof. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And you designed a cover page, which has a beautiful illustration of DNA helix turning into a puff of smoke. Did you use the AI mid journey or dolly or something to design it? Or, or do you have artistic talents as well? Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, so the cover page, yeah, I designed it myself. So there's like no no AI assistance. So I used to do work on Illustrator and Photoshop during my med school times. And, you know, as well, one of the go-to person to design brochures, you know, college invitations. It's kind of a hobby. It's been like a long time since I used it. And we had this, you know, like idea, why don't we suggest a cover for Nature Genetics and then I was trying some commercial illustrators, but it was time was very short. And then just a weekend, I thought maybe I should give it a shot and it just worked out. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy <laughs> and kind of more excited about the cover page than the actual paper getting published. I thought the paper was very interesting too. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it because it's, it's related to a lot of what we're going to discuss today, which is how rare, both rare and common genetic variants can really provide a window into biology and drug target discovery. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we had this introduce myself even during the last podcast, what we do, you know, what the kind of work we do at Regeneron. So so we are mainly in the drug target discovery area. So where we use human genetics to identify the targets. And one of the very specific types of associations that we are interested in is protective associations. And so I'm working in the neurology, psychiatry, you know, addiction fields. And this is one of the first projects that I started. I joined Region Run in 2000, uh, middle of 2021. And yeah, so it was like very excited to find this. You know, it's like it's not a very novel association, but you know, it's the first time we are getting a human genetics validation of this target. It's actually a subunit of nicotinastylcholine receptor, HRNB2 is the name of the gene. And this encodes a subunit of the most predominant receptor, nicotine receptor in the brain. And this is like a known target of Chantix verniclin. That's been first line drug used in the smoking cessation. And so we found the, you know, like the human genetic evidence. And it was like very exciting because the Chantix was like 
design based on you know another chemical molecule called cytosine which has goes really long back you know even before we know about all these nicotine receptors so i think it's like a serendipitous flavor of drugs where you identify these molecules even before knowing how the mechanisms act and retrospectively we you know like kind of have this human genetic validation which also very well aligned with the mice genetics is one of the landmark paper from Marina Picciotto, and they are the pioneers in this nicotine receptor biology. So it all worked well. So everything aligned perfectly. And this is kind of the main highlight is this is the first behavioral genetics drug targets that has been identified. So, so you know, like always there's criticism about doing genetics for behavioral phenotypes. And, you know, it was like, we was very excited to show this even for you know, behavioral phenotypes where it is really difficult to do genetic studies, we can identify biologically meaningful targets like this. And how does this, for those who haven't read the paper yet, how does the mechanism actually work here? So I think carrying the variant was associated with a, about a twofold decrease or 35% decrease in likelihood of smoking heavily. What is it that's going on in the brain of people who carry this rare knockout or rare loss of function of this particular gene? Yeah, so that's a good question. So basically what we, the main finding here is we find that individuals who carry rare deleterious mutations in CHRNB2 are protected from smoking heavily. And also we see this protection at multiple, you know, like disease indications that are downstream of smoking. And so this kind of validates the mechanism of myrniclin, which actually is a partial agonist antagonist of this nicotine alpha-4 beta-2 receptor. So this is the main switch, if you can, you know, uh, you can say, for nicotine to act on the brain. And having a deleterious mutation kind of switch off, you know, switches off this, and so nicotine cannot act. So it's mainly cutting the rewarding effects. So people so we believe that people who smoke with people who have mutations smoke, they won't feel as much rewarding effects as in non-carrier. So this kind of protects them from becoming addicted to smoking. Interesting. How much is known about the drivers behind other kinds of addictions, whether it's alcohol or gambling? Do we have, do because this is a direct kind of chemical link to the nicotine, and I'm wondering whether there are master regulators of addictive behavior and those sorts of things, or whether they tend to be on a compound by compound level, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, that's also a great question. So there is at some level, there is some kind of common, you know, like there is convergence in the molecular mechanism. So the midbrain region actually have this reward neural circuits, right? So and this neural circuits is like kind of believed to play a role in different types of addiction, you know, like it can be cannabis or smoking or even can be like, you know, like internet or, you know, like gambling addiction and even some related to, you know, like obesity. So this reward pathways are mainly to be blamed, but the genes and, you know, like there's, there are probably like sub-biological pathways that are kind of have more specificity towards each indication. So smoking, you know, nicotine receptors, um, but we don't know, like we really just scratching the surface of what nicotine receptors, you know, like involved in the brain. There is like a huge amount of literature. And then for alcohol, we have, you know, like opiate systems, but also we have the, you know, alcohol enzyme in the liver, you know, that's one of the mechanism of disulfuram, which inhibits the alcohol processing enzyme. 
So yeah, there are like compound specific stories, but also in a general, there is like some kind of common biology behind multiple addiction. And I, I, I think like we are still learning. We are in a very early stage of understanding them. Yeah. And the part of the reason I was wondering was there are anecdotal reports, and I think probably trials either ongoing or coming, looking at some of the GLP-1 agonist, Ozempic, generic name, I think is, is semaglutide. But many people are saying I they use this to lose weight, but actually see impacts on other kinds of addictions, or I should say addictions, not that not that losing weight is or having to lose weight in the first place is the result of an addiction. But yeah, I was curious there where there's clearly a mechanism there that needs to be investigated a little further on this one. Yeah, that is something I'm also like very keenly, you know, watching. So there's like multiple when the Ozambic thing was like, you know, like I was like everyone talking about it a few months ago. One of the things that was really stood out for me is that like people, you know, like serendipitiously reporting also some kind of protection against smoking and alcoholism. And this really took up. So I think like, you know, Paul Kenny, a very big shot in the field of addiction biology from Mount Sinai, he even made an announcement in TV about the clinical trials they're starting this year, next year for, you know, like uh, this GLP-1 receptor agonist for addiction indications. And so... Yeah, it's really, really great. And hopefully, you know, there might be some genetics also will emerge. We'll see. So it's something to watch for. Yeah, very exciting. If it turns out, then it's, I think it's a big, already it's a big thing. So it's going to be a huge thing. Yes, absolutely. And maybe that'll be one of our 2024 stories if somebody cracks that case. But one of the big, very exciting stories that is actually only maybe a week or two old by the three weeks old by the time we released this episode, but approval of Kazgevi, which is, I think, the first successful translation from an initial discovery from a genome-wide association study rather than a rare rare variant or founder population type of study all the way through to a, a therapy. And it's a it's an approved therapy for um, sickle cell disease. Now, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You've got it as your most exciting story of the year. I think I'd probably have to agree with you, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about um, what's going on there. Yeah, definitely. So for me, this is, you know, without any doubt, the most exciting uh, story of this year, you know, like, because, you know, I'm more interested in the GWAS literature and stuff. And this is one of the very early discoveries made in 2007. And this is the first successful translation of a GWAS finding into a drug target. So that's like makes this 2023 uh, landmark in the, you know, in the GWAS history. And also, like, I think it's important that we also need to I like the genetic aspect of it, right? So, I mean, this is this approval marks the success of two technologies. One is CRISPR technology. That's what most of the people are talking about. And, you know, like some of we uh, as dentists is also like try to shout out about the, hey, this is also like, you know, you know, this BCLNA was first discovered through GWAS studies. So uh, I was like very into this sickle cell disease and this literature. I've been digging into this. I've been also talking to some of the people involved in this, like Vijay Shankaran from Harvard, he is on. He is one of the main person involved in, you know, decoding all this hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin switching and everything. There's so much, but maybe I can just, you know, like highlight just few things about it. So first is I think how this drug acts, right? So yes. so basically they use a 
CRISPR system to do to make a double uh, stranded NIC at a region which is basically the enhancer region for BCL11A. And this results in reduced expression of BCL11A, which is the main transcription factor responsible for fetal hemoglobin to adult hemoglobin switching, which happens, you know, after birth. And so this results in increased hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin production, and this helps both sickle cell disease patients as well as, you know, beta thalassemia patients. It's more striking in sickle cell patients where it reduces the, you know, vaso-occlusive episodes and also pain. Pain is the worst thing clinical future, really. The pain they suffer is really, you know, like cannot imagine. So I think that's where it's really, it works really great. And so that's how the drug works. So there is rational for HBF induction to treat sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is, you know, is caused by a point mutation in the beta globin genes, one of the first molecular disease that's been like identified. And this results in, you know, like less, you know, like it reduces the solubility of the hemoglobin and it just gives this specific, the polymerizes the hemoglobin molecules resulting in specific sickle cell shape, right? So one of the earliest findings that was like, you know, observed in the natural history study and also, you know, from the clinical observations is that patients with sickle cell mutations, they do not have, you know, like symptoms, newborn do not have symptoms in the first few months after birth. And it was hypothesized that this could be because the hemoglobin switching is still happening. So there's like high level of fetal hemoglobin. And that stimulated natural history study. Then it turned out in all epidemiological studies, the percentage of hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin in the blood is one of the strongest predictor of, you know, like disease progression. And that actually led to the whole drug development area where people are really trying hard to, you know, like find different ways to design small molecule drugs to increase the HBF. And the problem here is they don't know the mechanism, how this hemoglobin switching happens, you know, what is like controlling it. Either, so to only if you understand the mechanism, we can design the drug. But still, serendipitously, like, there was like drugs, anti-cancer drugs, that they found that actually have an effect on the hemo fetal hemoglobin. And even now, hydroxyurea is the, you know, like widely used drug. So that is how, you know, like the HBF induction became a major mechanism to target, to treat sickle cell disease. And this is like people are looking at all different ways of doing, you know, like in vitro screens and knockout studies. I was talking to Vijay Shankar and, you know, like he and his supervisor colleague Stu Orkin, they were like pioneer in this field. So they were like working for a long time decoding this mechanism. So then this genome-wide association study happened, you know, like it was also more serendipitous because they were not really working on any GWAS studies. That is the time the GWAS is just picking up. And then, you know, like people from other groups, actually, for some reason, they wanted, you know, like, you know, Gonzalo Abicazes, and he's like a big shot in the spelgenetics field. So he one day makes a phone call to, you know, like Joel Fishon, who actually does this statistical genetics course in Harvard to ask, hey, we have this kind of study for fetal hemoglobin. We submitted to science and it was, you know, like they said, we need a replication. Do you have anything? And that's how they got contact into, they got like, they were like exactly waiting for such thing, right? So they wanted to know, they had no clue. He said, they, we were nowhere close to identifying the transcription factor causing the hemoglobin switching. And then this happened and then they collaborated and then that's how the one there's like multiple publications 
two publications mainly happened in 2007 and 2008 that showed the clear signal in the BC11A intronic region. And that's how the discovery happened. And then they picked up on that. And then there was like, they did the functional study and they kind of showed it's an erythroid specific, you know, uh, transcription factor that is mainly expressed only after birth and it suppresses the hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin production, and it, you know, it releases, it increases the adult hemoglobin production. So that's like really incredible, you know, like application of a GWAS. That's a kind of application we always, you know, like look for, right? So looking at hypothesis free, looking at the full genome, trying to identify, in this case, trans regulator of HBF. So you cannot do that by case basis. That's like thousands of proteins, right? So it's a very clear application of a GWAS case. Yeah, amazing. And, and I suspect probably the first of many because we're seeing now every year as data sets get bigger, these kind of collaborations uh, form. There's more and more of these interesting, not just primary discoveries of a hit, but also modifiers. And, and I think that was one of the big stories within this field that you looked at this year. There was a beautiful paper uh, looking at a modifier of um, ApoL1, which is a risk factor for a relatively rare form of kidney disease called FSGS. We've spoken about ApoL1 on the podcast actually before, and we'll have the author of um, this particular paper on in a couple of weeks, Alexander Bick, to go into this in a little bit more detail. But we asked them to join the podcast because I also thought it was an amazing story and piece of work. So maybe you can talk a little bit of the backstory of ApoL1 for those who aren't familiar, and then this newly discovered modifier that I think provides a really interesting window from a drug development perspective. Yeah, sure. So ApoL1 is one of the other second most exciting, you know, the story for me in this year. So I've been like following up on the story for a couple of years now. I wrote a tweet maybe like last year or the previous year based on a New York Times article that really went, you know, attracted a lot of attention. So ApoL1 is one of the, similar to BC11A, ApoL1 is also one of the discoveries made very early. I think in 2007 or 2008, when the GWAS is just starting, people are looking at all the, you know, trying to identify all the low-hanging fruits. And the special about this is like kind of a discovery that was made in the African-Americans and African population. And so we know for a long time that kidney disease like disproportionately affecting African-Americans. So, you know, any kind of environment or, you know, like systematic systemic bias and things like that, structural bias, cannot explain such a big difference. And always people thought there should be something genetics. And this is like the first one they identified in a very small sample size. It's, such, it's a recessive association. It's caused by, you know, like two different set of uh, variants, you know, OL1. They call it like G1 and G2 haplotypes. And when they occur, you know, like when one, one of, when it is like occurring in a recessive state, like both alleles are affected, it increases the kidney disease by odds ratio, I think like up to 16. And uh, this is one of the main risk factor. And, you know, so, and the reason why it is very highly increased in you know, African population is, you know, it's very similar to sickle cell variant increasing in frequency because of protection against malaria, you have this mutation. It's actually a gain-of-function mutation. It gives protection against a disease called sleeping sickness. It's caused by trypano, you know, like some infection, parasitic infection. And so this, then that's the reason this kind of increased in 
frequencies at such a high level. This is like one of the very clear target population, but the mechanism, people are working on it for like 20, 30 years, I think. The generally approved me message is that this is a gain of function mutation. And so the, how will you treat it? We tr you try to treat it by inhibiting the ApoL1, though I don't think like, you know, like any kind of genetic evidence has been really came up. I mean, like ApoL1 loss of function mutations is extremely rare. And so there's like, I think six, seven drugs already in the pipeline. Mainly they inhibit the ApoL1, ApoL1 inhibitors, more molecules and other modalities. But this kind of, this evidence is surfaced this year. It's actually reported by two research, two independent teams, one from the Columbia University and one from the Vanderbilt University. That's where like Alex Big, who had this interview with. So they both reported the same protective association with the missense variant, which actually is a loss of function variant. When it happens, you know, it kind of in the same G2 haplotype, it, it just eliminates the, the gain of function activity of the ApoL1. And the, for me, the most interesting part of this is like the origin of this mutation. So it was like happened, I think, maybe like 10 years ago in, the, in a hospital in Ghana, in Africa, where doctors encountered a patient, you know, like who had this trypanosome infection. And it's very rare to see those cases nowadays, you know. And so they were like really curious and they kind of treated him appropriately, you know, like, but also took the sample and they, they wanted to study and they collaborated with the researchers in Belgium. And then the first thing they thought maybe this person doesn't have the apoyal genotype. But to their surprise, they found this person has a homozygous apoyal genotype, which is like protection. It gives protection against this infection. So that kind of triggered them into looking into modifier variants. And they clearly identified this person as having this particular missense mutation, which actually, you know, is a loss of function. It completely abolishes the apoyal activity. And that is what is now, you know, people are reporting as a protective association in different populations. And the beauty of this is this kind of validates the approach, right? So the approach is to inhibit the ApoL1 and to treat the disease. And I think like already some of the drugs are very late in the clinical development. So hopefully 2024 might be the biggest story will be like ApoL1 drug approval like we have for sickle cell disease this year. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I think it's an amazing piece of work. And to me, part of the story, a big part of the story was that serendipitous discovery. And to me, it points to the importance of studying, you know, populations and countries that are outside of Europe. We know that we're not covering the genetic diversity around the world, even to a tenth of what's possible if we're so focused on the countries we're in today. I also think it points to the power of the scale that some of the very diverse cohorts in particular in the US are getting to. They did this analysis in both the Million Veterans Program and the All of Us, which are both have you know made a focus on recruiting a diverse set of Americans that include African Americans, people of Latino ancestry, and so on. And so the power of these large and diverse data sets has meant that you could make this discovery initially in a very small uh, N of one study in Ghana, but then actually replicate it and provide a lot more robust statistics on a much bigger scale. So it's amazing to see these worlds coming together. Yeah, it's really an evolving story. And there's like so many, you know, exciting snippets in that. Maybe we can link the, the Twitter thread that I wrote about different, you know, like serendipitous part of this evolving story. Yeah.
Yeah, definitely. The the role in, of serendipity in all of these, I think, is shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, the BCL11A story that you told involved a serendipitous phone call. This story absolutely does. The third one on your list, I don't know if we've got serendipity involved. There, there probably is, but it's another protective variant that we're looking at. So people may be familiar with the APOE4, for which loss of function in a homozygous state confers a pretty a pretty marked increase in Alzheimer's disease and dementia risk. The homos- the heterozygous state does confer extra risk as well, though not to the not to the extent. But this paper I also thought was really interesting. It was discovery of of in, in a very large study, but a very rare loss of function variant in APOE4 that chops off the E4 allele. And you wrote a, again a great breakdown on Twitter that we'll post a link to in the show notes. But it'd be great to just have your perspective on this. And in many ways, I mean, this is, you know, again, part of the same story of using human genetics to validate drug targets that we're already going after, but also understand the mechanism in a, in a lot more detail. So maybe you can talk about that one and what stood out to you about this particular study. Yeah, so so that, there's like two very closely related studies. One is that, you know, was published this year. That's one of us talking about E4 you know, loss of function variant, co-inheriting with E4 allele. And one other, you know, big story, I think one year before it was published in Nature Medicine, it's like a Christ church uh, that has happened, that, that they, you know, like there's like PSN1 mutation causes very early onset Alzheimer's disease. And there is like a very big kindred in Columbia, right? It's bad, it was identified. And there they identified one woman who had this like this PSN1 mutation, but never developed Alzheimer's even at the late age. And then they found that this patient had a very rare missense variant. It's it's called like Christchurch variant. It was first reported in New Zealand, I think like many years ago in a heat E2 haplotype. But, you know, like this time they actually looked into the E3 haplotype. And so they kind of hypothesized that this, this missense variant in the APOE gives protection against PSN1, you know, like, and so... This is like a very extraordinarily large, just a single patient. And there was like one other development this year. There was a paper in Nature Neuroscience where they modeled the same price chest variant in an E4 haplotype in a mice. And they show when you do that, you can actually see a protective effect on the, you know, like the Alzheimer's pathology. And so Joy was like mentioning that it's like there's like a really lot of interest in identifying these kind of modified variants and the challenges, you know, the sample size, you really need a very large sample size. And for conditions like Alzheimer's, our sample size are still very modest, you know. And so the what you will see in these kind of papers, the other one is the APOE4, uh, where they, you know, like scanned through a big database of Alzheimer's patients who have been sequenced and they kind of handpicked all the ones who had the PILOF variant. PILOF variants in APOE is like very rare. So still people are wanting to see what is this effect of PILOF on Alzheimer's, but it's going to be very challenging, even in this paper, right? So one of the drawbacks of this paper is like it's a handful of patients to make assumptions about what you see in this patient. I mean, they had very good phenotype. They had like, you know, biomarkers. They also have brain histopathology. One of the patients or maybe a couple of the patients had postmortem brain examination. And so they say that, you know, individuals for heterozygote for E4 who co-inherited, you know, the appeal of variation, right, that kind of chopped off the E4 haplotype, they actually did not develop Alzheimer's disease. 
this is not shown as like a statistical association, but it's like case by case basis, they explain it. And because they did not have the, you know, like a lot of sample size, but still it's very interesting. It's kind of validates, I think the current approaches a lot of companies are thinking about in terms of treating Alzheimer's disease is to use this APOE4, you know, like knockdown approach, a little specific knockdown approach and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's very interesting paper, but we need to, the, the, the association is not as strong as what you see in OL1, but it's a very important advance, I'd say. So some kind of positive, you know, like evidence there to follow up. Yeah. And, and you made the really, uh, I think, interesting and important point in the tweet breakdown that something these studies don't tell you so easily is the when you have a knockout like this, a germline knockout, then you have a, essentially a lifelong knockout of this gene. But when you're designing a drug, you're very unlikely to have a lifelong knockout. And so there's a question of if, if you have an APOE4 inhibitor, for example, at what point do you need to intervene to have some kind of impact that prevents or at least delays progression of someone developing Alzheimer's? And this is a a topic area I'm I'm really interested in. We have a guest that will episode will go live in January, but who's doing this kind of work in ALS and in genetic forms of ALS and MND, Michael Benatar, who's who's at Miami's Miller School of Medicine and has been for the past two decades studying people who carry genetic risk factors of ALS and measuring very carefully biomarkers, both genomic and otherwise, that correlate with progression and phenoconversion ultimately to to ALS and MND. And I think it's going to be one of the most interesting, hopefully, changes of our time where we can start to flip from treating symptomatic patients in neurodegenerative disease to treating asymptomatic patients and preventing this from ever happening. But I think certainly in that field, but also in Alzheimer's, it depends a lot on identifying good biomarkers of early progression so that you can identify at what point is the right time to intervene with that with that medicine that hopefully isn't when somebody has you know developed a, a full course of disease but is at the mild cognitive impairment stage or, or even earlier on if there's good biomarkers to to detect that yeah that's a really great point that's one of the fundamental challenge of alzheimer's trials at what point you need to intervene right so but also it's kind of uh, something that's also we often get to, you know, like questions from our drug developing colleagues, you know, from who does all this preclinical studies like, you know, so we, what we can get from the human genetic evidence is like a lifelong knockdown or, you know, like whatever. So, but it's, we cannot get any kind of evidence where you can, you know, like if you knock down a, a gene only in the you know, like in the postnatal period, or maybe for a very good example is like the CHR and B2 that I've been like, you know, working on it. So, you know, typically for a smoking treatment, right? So the chantix that we use prescribed for smoking cessation is just only for a short duration until the person quits smoking. Then, yeah. you know, then the person can get back to their life, right? So basically, if you have to design drug, you know, like something like chantix, then you have to like, probably, you know, inhibit the gene or something for a very short duration, right? And this is kind of, if you put this in the context of having, not having this gene or, you know, like a dysfunction, having a dysfunctional gene for a whole life, then really we need to consider about these differences when we interpret the adverse effects as well, right? So yeah. there might be, there are a lot of situations where, you know, a gene is like 
very essential during the neurodevelopment, I mean, brain development, but later not. Or also like it can be very lethal only when it is like absent for the whole lifetime, but not when you do it in the very specific time point. And this is like really difficult to get from a, you know, human genetics evidence. Only like that's where like really the preclinical studies and animal models and things like that can really help. So yeah, that's a really great point. So I think it's even a bigger challenge in Alzheimer's trials. Yeah, we're, and we're starting to move into rare disease a little bit now. And theme two maybe is the transition from common disease genetics and their role in drug development to rare disease. And especially as the number of rare disease focused programs and the scale of some of these population scale biobanks grow, we start to get really detailed looks into rare and ultra rare populations and looping back maybe to the BCL. 11a story that we talked about at the top of the show around the sickle cell approval there was an interesting paper that you highlighted that looked at this from a very different perspective in a neurodevelopmental disorder cohort and and tied into that story maybe you can talk a little bit about that yeah so this is an another theme that i really you know like so how studying varadis patients inform common disease pathophysiology also drug targets for common disease and so after we briefly touch on the BC11A, I will talk about this HMGCR, the statin-associated rare disease is one of the, you know, like famous story this year. So in the BC11A, what happened is like, you know, so one of the ways, you know, you know, like the, the, the fundamental problem with the GWAS studies is like you identify, you know, variants, non-coding variants, right? So for example, for BC11A, it's an intronic variant within the BC11A. And then later the kind of studied further and then found that this is located within enhancer region, right? So it's very difficult to identify the causal gene. We will, so we'll have this FTO story coming up. So one of the ways you can identify causal gene is to, you know, like you can delete the gene in animal model or you can find individual humans who naturally lack this gene. So that's where this rare disease patients come up and then you, they can give you, you know, like Either they can help you to, okay, eliminate this is not the causal gene because you don't see this phenotype in the patient, or maybe you can help them to confirm. So similarly, this BC11A is the gene, like, but they wanted to, people like really wanted to know what happens in individuals who have haplo, you know, like, you know, like mutations, germline mutations in BC11A. So it turns out BC11A is like a neurodevelopmental gene. People who have haploinsufficiency have like, you know, intellectual disability and it's like a lot of brain-related developmental issues. But when they actually started looking into the literature, I was talking to like Vijay Shankaran. So they actually was like looking into this patients. Did they, any, in, the, in, the, in the clinical reports, did they report anything on the hematological phenotype? It turned out that in the same year, when they actually pub published the GWAS finding, there was like another, you know, like coincidental paper reporting on micro deletions in 2P regions causing neurodevelopmental syndrome. I think that's the first one. Right? At that point, they did not have any idea what's the, you know, like it's the mainly BC11A. But if you look into the reports, they reported everything, you know, like lung phenotype, you know, like all the brain phenotype and circulation and everything, but they did not report anything about hematological. So they were like, Huh. That's one piece of information that was like missing from that paper. So this, they have to like painfully wait and collaborate with the rare disease researchers in the Harvard and collect patients, right? So there's like recurrent micro deletions in this region. They have to identify a patient 
where the deletion is smallest possible, so it only hits the BCL11A. And finally, they found three patients, and then they looked into the hemoglobin fraction, and it's like more than 20 percentage, 20 to 30 percentage. And this kind of gave an important insight in the drug development because the people want to know what to what level you have to induce the hemoglobin fraction, like fetal hemoglobin, to achieve you know, like some kind of clinically meaningful outcome. From the natural history study, they say it's kind of 20% ballpark. So how much you have to knock down, knock it down the BCL11A. So, so you cannot like completely knock down the BCL11A because it seems if you do that, it's kind of some toxic for the B cells and things like that. So you need to dial it down. And 50%, that's what these haploinsufficient neurodevelopment patients have, right? Gave an insight. If you try dial it, if you reduce it by fifty percentage, you can increase the HBF by more than twenty percentage, and that is enough to cause you know like a clinical yeah. meaning outcome. It's like absolutely incredible example of how a rare disease can give you know like informed drug development and also establish causal genes in the GWAS locus. Yeah, amazing. And I guess it it this actually maybe dovetails really nicely into the follow-up story within this theme of studying rare disease to to inform some of the common disease findings. But in my mind, it makes me wonder whether with these new approved therapies going after BCL11A, whether some care needs to be paid to what's happening on the other allele that doesn't get edited. So if people are carrying modifiers that are already reducing their expression to some extent that this edit pushes it not to 50%, but to to something that becomes toxic. And I think, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity. We don't know the answer to that question, I don't think, but we do know the answer now to one of the really interesting puzzles around statins. So you, again, had a great thread on this that I, I learned this reading the thread, but that statins have a common side effect of, of myopathy. And this was a little bit of a puzzle for a long time until this piece of work was done. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the work and how the they managed to crack the code on why this incredibly common proof therapy that millions, hundreds of millions probably around the world take today has this side effect that we still didn't understand until relatively recently. Yeah, so this is another fascinating story. So this actually stemmed from my interest in HMGR, HMGCR because uh, I don't know if you came across such discussions. There's often we have this intense discussion about effect size. You know, that is like one group who says GWAS variants have a very minute effect size. Yes. What are you going to do with this locus? You know, like there's yes. other group that say they are common variants, right? You can actually, they are, you know, you can increase the effect size substantially by by using different modalities, right? But the important point, is it safe to do that? You know, that's, we need the human genetic things. So I was always interested in what is the RAD variant associations of HMGCR. And this is when I actually came across this paper in American Journal of Human Genetics, where they first time reported this biallelic mutation of HMGCR. And it turned out there was like a previous paper that was published, same findings, same similar findings in PNAS from an Israeli scientist in January. So both of them report the same thing. So they identified biolytic mutations as the cause of a very rare, you know, myopathy, like it's called limb girdle disease. And uh, it's caused by, characterized by very severe proximal muscle weakness to the point, you know, like it starts around 40 years of age and then people become like 
you know, like they get to the, in the wheelchair and then they had to get assisted ventilation. It's a very severe disease. And they found in this, like in two uh, families, they identified the cause of mutation. But the important, the most fascinating part of this is like, this is what like kind of driven me to look into the origin of the statins, right? So we should link this, you know, this article about the, the person, Akiro Endo, he's a scientist who actually discovered the statins. He's a Japanese scientist. It's really fascinating. Like, so this is also a serendipitous kind of discovery, maybe. Yeah. So he's like really fascinated about Alexander Fleming and penicillin, you know, like discoveries. So he's like, he was working on the fungi, different fungi and how they kind of in like protect against, you know, ward off the infections. And it turned out they kind of produce very specific chemical compounds that interferes with the cholesterol synthesis, very important for this, like this pathogens is infecting. And so he thought, so he started studying in that and then he was like, slow, he's like collecting compounds from different species of fungi. And there was like one time he got this rice from a local grocery store in Kyoto. And the fungi that he extracted from that have this billion dollar <laughs> jackpot oh, wow. a compound that kind of led to the, you know, the whole statins group or family of compounds. He never got the, you know, like the credit. I think it's, he worked for a company called Sanct uh, Sanctuor or something. And then, but later I think the Nobel Prize, when they awarded Nobel Prize for the, the stat cholesterol pathway, the scientists actually, you know, said it all the patients who today who have benefited from the statins owe to a window. So the interesting part is like when he actually designed the statins and those the first patient, it was like 18 years old female girl, they actually gave a very high dose. And this girl caught a severe proximal muscle weakness and they had to like stop the trial. And somehow they kind of, you know, fought against the company and the regulations and continued the trial with the lower dose and it became successful. Wow. But that part of the, that particular finding of severe muscle weakness in that first patient kind of buried in the literature, I think. And so, but later it turned out one of the common side effects is muscle pain. But there is a very big debate in the clinic clinicians who actually prescribe statins. You say like they, a lot of them don't believe that this is a real pain. I mean, there are even clinical trials where you say you prescribe statins without saying you will get muscle pain, right? Anything and they don't get muscle pain. But huh. this end of the first time we have a, like a genetic evidence where we say if there is a loss of function mutations in HMG-CR, then you get like severe myopathy. And the beauty of this is like the patient, the researchers from the Israel who did this, they also continued to do an N1 and it's called the one trial that, so the problem is like this HMGCR actually can, you know, like this, it reduces the HMG-CoA to mavernate, right? It is the precursor of cholesterol synthesis. So, so the problem is like, because there's a mavernate deficiency. So they thought, okay, if you supplement mavernate in these patients, will it have an effect? And they kind of did this mavernate supplementation and it had a dramatic effect in each, like in day 21, the patient they treated, regained a lot of, you know, muscle strength. She was not, she was able to breathe without ventilation. And this is like really amazing. And they kind of, you know, see that could, this could be mavernate supplementation could become like a standard way of treating severe myopathy associated statin supplementation. So I think this is like an incredible example of a rare disease very rare disease, right? So informing 
a drug that is used for a very common condition. So yeah, that's why yeah. I really like the story a lot. Is the idea that this supplementation with I I'm not going to remember the name of the the specific enzyme no, that they supplement. Would the idea be that for people who are on statins and experiencing either mild or moderate or severe muscle pain, they might be able to be prescribed this to reverse that aspect of the phenotype? Is that right? Yeah, that's the speculation, but it's not really clear because you're basically reversing the effect of your drug, right? I mean, from what they see in this patient, the mevalonate supplementation did not change the cholesterol levels, did not influence the cholesterol levels. So there could be more than what we know, you know, just from this, what we know is like this simple chemical reaction that is like blocking the cholesterol synthesis and things. Maybe there are like more, you know, like alternative reactions and things like that. So it's, it's more of a speculation, but I think it's like the insights that we got here from this disease patients is really great. And even for not for statin associated myopathy, I mean, this malignant supplementation is a very simple treatment for very rare disease. Imagine kind yes. of treatment we go, we design today for rare disease, CRISPR treatment, things like that, for like $2 million. This is very simple, you know, supplementation. That's like, and it's like getting back their life for them, right? So it's like incredible. Yes, absolutely. And I think with these kind of, a couple of the discoveries we've talked about today are kind of happening in, in order in the sense that BCL11A is discovered, the mechanisms worked out, and then drug development starts to happen probably off the back of some of those discoveries. But then some of them are in completely garbled up order, like that the drug development is years underway for APOL1 and, and people more or less just figure out ways or, or trust that they can safely inhibit it. And there's, I'm sure, good in vitro models or okay ones that, but it, these kind of things do make me wonder about the path dependency of some of these development stories where if if this particular relationship with the, you know, with the myopathy phenotype had been more thoroughly studied earlier and not kind of buried and with the work continuing in, in secret or in a gray area, would they have designed it differently? Would they have chased this down? Would we have never had the discovery in the first place? It's it's hard to know, but it's really interesting to hear some of these stories that are almost coloring in the lines retrospectively. And these things have happened anyways, but others that are really the reason why some of these programs are starting in the first place. Yeah. So like, I just need to add a comment here. This is one of the things that we kind of, you know, like as a person working in drug discovery research in a pharma company is like, there's like two different areas that we are focusing on. One is like target discovery, right? And the other one is like, we use human genetics to try to validate the ongoing programs. Yes. And, and, and that's like not as often fruitful as it is for target discovery, but you know, like people always come with, hey, did you find any human genetic evidence for this program? And like often they are very constrained genes we don't find, but sometimes, you know, this kind of human genetic evidence kind of informs you, you might find this adverse effect. You know, or you might be able, you might see that the efficacy is not as great you would expect because we don't, we, the maximum thing we see when patients who completely lack this gene is only this much. So you cannot push it further, you know. So things, insights like this can really help with the drug program, ongoing drug program. And that is one of the reasons a lot of companies are now starting to establish their own human genetics team to, you know, support the ongoing drug programs. 
Yes. And, and if people are interested in a deep dive into this, we had uh, David Ochoa from Open Targets on episode 112, which which was you know, just out, I think, two episodes before you'll be hearing this one. And we have Matt Nelson from Deerfield and the very next episode after this, so you can hear both of their perspectives on a really macro level of how genetics plays a role in drug discovery development and also increasingly clinical trial stoppage, success, and so on. It's It's an interesting it's an interesting time with some very great perspectives on this. Yeah, I listened to the David's uh, um, episode like maybe two weeks ago. It was really great. Yeah, looking forward to listening to Yeah, Matt. he's yeah, very he's... good. I think they probably agree on uh, most things, but maybe disagree on some. So it's it'll be a good pair to listen to. I think moving on further into the mysteries of how we actually understand these GWAS loci, I think this example that you pull out here is an amazing one because it's one thing to discover a locus and think you understand it. But I think this particular story just underscores how uh, complex the biology can be, even when a gene is so incredibly well studied, like the FTO gene and, and locus is. Sometimes we it take some amazing work and some very detailed unpicking of what the heck is going on to figure out what the heck is going on. So maybe you can talk about this. I think this is probably one of your more interesting deep dives that you've done this year, and I think was a very well received 300 something retweets and lots of people interested in it. Yeah, it attracted, it caught a lot of attraction. So I think uh, people were really interested in this old FTO story. I mean, I chose this example to highlight, you know, like often we get this question of we have like common variants versus rare variants, which ones, you know, like are more useful for drug development and it's, you know, like mostly the companies go after rare variants, right? So they do exome sequencing and common variants. It's the challenge associated with the common variant is like to identify the causal genes at the locus. And for the rare variants, our starting point is gene. So you can just proceed with, you know, like for some, if you start with a common variant, probably you'll have like 10 years or so just figuring out what gene it is. And FTO is like a fantastic example, I think. So like it again falls under the same theme of low-hanging fruits, like BC11A, ApoL1, FTO, they all been discovered in the same, almost very close, 2007-2008. So FTO was the very first association identified for obesity. And interestingly, it was first identified as an association type 2 diabetes. A lot of people, I don't think they know. So the they found this as an association of type 2 diabetes based on a case control analysis from the Welcome Trust Case Control Consortium. And then they kind of adjusted for BMI and to see, and this is like completely mediated by BMI. So it's a fantastic paper. So one of the landmark paper, uh, I think it was the science paper in 2007. So, but the thing is like, they didn't have like any kind of idea what is the causal gene. I think, again, it's an intronic variant. And so they kind of, you know, believed FTO it is. And like this finding really triggered a lot of research. There's like many landmark publications you would call or like big publications like Nature Science, NEJM, you know, like step-by-step -step decoding this loci. Like the very first obvious thing to do is like, okay, if FTO is the causal gene, let's delete this gene in mice and see what happens. And that's what they did. And they found that when you knock out the FTO, the mice is like developmentally standard and it has a lean body mass. And so they thought, okay, so then FTO is the causal gene. It has an effect on the, you know, like the body weight. And then immediately there was follow-up studies that showed if you knock out FTO after, you know, the animal is born, right, in the adult stage, 
you see, you don't see this effect, what you see. So it's kind of a more developmental effect. And you also see if you knock out the FTO only in the adipose tissue, right? So, and so that kind of added some confusion to the story. And then we had this kind of big two major publications, side-by-side publications in 2014, I think. One was in Nature, another one was in NEJM that kind of showed that the causal gene is not FTO, but it was like a couple of genes located a few KB away. And uh, the mechanism is that this intronic region in the FTO acts as an enhancer for these two, you know, like IRX1 and 2 genes located far away. And then the 3D space, they kind of, you know, like hold and go and touch with the promoter. And this is often kind of like a very common example to show whenever discussion comes up, closest gene is the causal gene for a GWAS locus. When you want to look at the exception, they often highlight this as an example. And then I think then there was like follow-up studies. Then again, it showed when you actually delete the intronic region within, you know, like this, because all these studies have been like doing FD1 knockout or something like that. It's like you have to like exactly delete the region where the GWAS signal is done, right? So then if you delete the intronic region, again, you can see it affects the expression of IRX1 and IRX3, 2 and 3, and they kind of believe that these are the causal genes. Then this year, we had this paper in Nature Metabolism from people, scientists from China, who showed that, who, who argued that if you want to really, you know, like mimic the human gene was finding, then you have to take this exact variant and knock in in the mice and see what happens. And they actually did that. <laughs> and they found that the effect was completely opposite to what they actually they see in the humans. In the humans, the homozygotes actually weigh three kilograms more than the non-carrier. So it increases the BMI. And in the mice, actually decrease the BMI. And it does so by increasing the basal metabolic rate and brown, you know, adipose tissue thermogenesis. And so this kind of add to the confusion and, you know, like they also showed this knocking in actually affected the FTO expression, but not the IRX expression. So they came back to the causal thing being FTO. And the most interesting part of this is like the kind of show they looked into the ambient temperature, right? So when you were studying about the brown tissue thermogenesis, adipose thermogenesis, so the ambient temperature, what they actually did this experiment. The mice is like, it's ambient for humans, but not for mice. So mice actually, you know, like their ambient temperature is like more than like 30 degrees Celsius or something. So they changed the temperature, repeated the experiment and all these effects got blunted. So there's like two factors it seems important. One is presence of brown adipose tissue. And the other one is the ambient temperature. And the first factor is a big difference between mice and humans because in the mice, they have the brown adipose tissue in us adults, but in humans, we have it only during the infantry stage. Mm. We don't have it in adults. And it turned out there is a paper which actually showed the FTO variant actually has decreases the weight when during the very early stage of life, and then it starts to increase. And so this kind of explains why this opposing effect is seen in the early infantile stage, because that's when we have the brown adipose tissue. So I think still there is like a lot of unknowns. I think this is one of the most studied GWAS locus, I think, in the literature. And still, I don't think uh, there is any kind of agreement which one is the 
causes in here. So there's like people yeah. who love FT war, people will say ARX one, two, two, one, three. So it's very humbling, isn't it, to study a gene for or a locus for this long and still feel like you get your world gets flipped upside down every time a new major paper comes out because, like you said, they found the exact opposite of what they were. But it, I was struck by how meticulous they were at chasing this down with looking at temperature changes, the beautiful graph that you have in the tweet thread that shows this inversion basically of the curves early in life and later in life. It's I remember seeing a seeing a talk many years ago where somebody walked through the science of I don't actually remember the gene or the therapy anymore, but they walked through about 20 years from discovery of the monogenic condition through to a, a therapy being created and and some of these twists and turns along the way. Um, and I think your GWAS storytelling career is is going to have a very long life, uh, given how many of these things we need to figure out. Yeah, I think there's all this early, what you call is like low hanging fruits are the ones that like often you're, you know, like very difficult to crack it open. So, you know, like most of the ones that we discovered in 2007, people discovered GWAS still that where people are trying to make sense of those low, low sides. So the literature will evolve. Yeah, we're we're perfectly on time here to cover our fourth topic in, in the first half of this episode. And then we're going to take a little break and come back for part two. But this last theme is about genetic drift, endogamy, consanguinity, and also more generally the rise of large-scale studies and very you know carefully designed studies looking beyond European populations. So maybe we could start with, with the FinGen flagship paper publications, or multiple of them in nature. It'd be great to talk a little bit about FinGen. I haven't actually had anyone on the podcast from FinGen, and I'll do that because I think it's an incredible study. But maybe you can talk a little bit about that and then follow up with with the 23andMe paper where they found a really interesting founder variant in a Puerto Rican population to talk a little bit about the role that these founder populations play, very important one in human genetics. Yeah. So this is another favorite theme of mine. So looking into studying populations, Outside Europe, you know, like non-European populations, also studying, you know, like looking outside the outbred population, right? So one of the two great resources, like we know Icelandic population, Decode, they are the global leaders and they pioneered this research and they're kind of an isolated population. And similarly, the FinGen recently evolved, you know, it's also an isolated population. It underwent multiple bottlenecks. And the result of this is like there are a lot of rare variants that because of genetic drift, they rise to very high frequency. And we know this, but there's like so many interesting publications from, you know, like isolated studies from different parts of Finland. So there's like, we also know a lot of diseases, recessive diseases that are, you know, like common in Finland. But then this FinGen was like established, I think maybe a few years five years ago or so, and then they kind of made this 500,000, very similar to UK Biobank, establishing a biobank in FinGen based on, you know, like health, incorporating the health system. And this one is the first flagship paper from the first release where they see a genotype. They did not sequence. This That's another interesting part of this is like, so when you actually have this kind of founder populations, right? So there's two things when you have this bottleneck population. One is, there are a lot of rare variants that go drift into very high frequency. And these are the variants that you can actually identify using genotyping and imputation. And the second thing is there won't be, you know, like 
compared to outbreak population, the rare variants like singletons or other variants are very, you know, like less because of, you know, lack of diversity, right? So one of the, one of the things that you will notice that neither Iceland, right, or, or Finland, they did not go for like sequencing the whole population. So they had this formula of sequencing a subset of the population and deriving haplotypes from there and imputing it. So that is how they did this, but probably they will change, you know, like as technologies and prices come down. For now, this paper, flagship paper, is based on genotyping of 220,000. And so they have like two parallel publications. One they did, you know, looked into the, they did a GWAS association studies for all the electronic health record derived phenotypes in this population and also like meta-analyzed with UK Biobank. And so the major message from here is like, there are many associations that are unique to Finland. And these are the ones that are driven by drifted variants in Finland. So these variants are multiple times enriched in Finland and absent elsewhere. So this is one of the importance of studying isolated populations. So to find same association in, in UK Biobank and other population, you will really need like to sequence millions of individuals to capture that handful of carriers. And if you go to Finland, you will find like 100 or 200 carriers. And they have like many interesting, you know, associations. I think they highlight one of the most interesting ones is an association with inflammatory bowel disease. There is like a TNRC18 and it's like 116 fold enriched in the Finland population. Oh. And the risk odds ratios almost same, very same as the, you know, the NOT2, the major risk factor inflammatory bowel disease that we know for a long time. So, you know, very similar risk factor, but it's been hidden because people carrying this mutation were only in the Finland. And that's like really fascinating. And um, so in many similar examples, there's like the first paper where they show unique associations in the Finland from drifted variants. And there's like a parallel publication where they focus on recessive genetic associations. So this is really an evolved, you know, like area where emerging databases, biobanks are really giving insights into, into our understanding of Mendelian diseases. So we know autosomal dominant disease, recessive disease, all of this, our knowledge about these diseases come from isolated families and patients from, you know, the clinics. Doctors have seen many years ago. And like, so we, this is the first time we are able to get like an, you know, like their va validation or maybe replication of these so-called recessive associations in a population scale. And there's like, already there is like heritage recessive diseases, like hearing loss, retinal dystrophies that are already known to be common in, in Finland. But they also, when they did this systematically, they also found a lot of associations that was significant only when you do a recessive model. They highlight few, like they have CAT7, I think it's associated with adult onset cataract, and there is like a female infertility gene, some genes related to estrogen receptor binding antigen something. And it's very interesting, you know, associations seems they are recessive diseases that we never knew about it before. So this is kind of, you know, it's a flagship paper and kind of highlights the importance of studying founder populations, which is very important, right? So there are so many such populations around the world and we don't know, we are just starting to, you know, learn about them. Yeah, and it's almost, you've highlighted the double importance of these studies. It is, um, 
important to understand the diversity of genetics around the world and, and it helps us from a fundamental discovery perspective but it's also really critical for healthcare systems in every country to understand actually what are the differences in the you know the particular genetic diseases that might be at either at higher rate or uh, completely non-existent elsewhere in the world that do exist in your country so i think uh, we're going to talk through quite a few examples in this category but i think it's a really important double value of investing in these kinds of programs that you both get to further the science while also making sure that the discoveries are are really localized correctly to the group of people that ultimately are trying to help by bringing this to the healthcare system. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to highlight here is like, you know, FinGen is like, op they openly share their association results. And there's been like incredible resource for both academic researchers and as well as, you know, people from the pharma industries, right? For you. you know, I have one example from my own case where I did this association. We found the CHRB2, right? So we found that this rad variance, one one missense variant is the one actually was like the main driver of this association. And this like incredible, it's very rare in the it's only seen in the European population, but it's rare in the you know non-Finnish Europeans. But it's like almost 10 times enriched in the Finland population. So just looking up this variant in the FinGen database kind of, you know, showed that, hey, this is enriched. It's like <laughs> there are more carriers there. Uh, even looking at a very small subset, we, we looked into like close to 800,000 in our sample. But in the FinGen, it's only like 100, 200,000. But still, we, are we were able to replicate the protective association, right? So this is a lot of people don't realize the value of this database. You know, I always say in the Twitter, never forget to check FinGen. And if you find anything, First thing you should go to the FinGen, you know, browser and check for, you know, like results of your favorite gene there. You will be pleasantly surprised often. Yes, maybe I'd love to just finish this first part with the uh, 23andMe story from Puerto Rico. And then we can pick up in the start of the next episode talking about some of the other findings and studies that fall under this under this broader category of looking at non-European populations. And in particular, the concept of endogamy and consanguinity that's a really important one and is again both driving important discoveries but also helping us to make discoveries that are more localized and relevant to the particular populations around the world so maybe you could finish with this really interesting study in puerto rico and then we'll take our break and come back for part two so this is like a paper from 23andme so this kind of falls under the theme that you know like often these founder populations or endogamous populations, you don't really have to like travel to all these exotic areas to actually do the studies. You have opportunities to make these discoveries, even the databases that we access day to day, right? So this is one example. There's also other couple of examples from the Mount Sinai Biobank and also from the UCLA Biobank. But here, like they kind of 23andMe researchers looked into the genetics, you know, like genetic associations focusing on Puerto Rican population, Hispanic and Latin American populations has been like historically underrepresented in genetic studies. And so I'm kind of more interested in all the evolving discoveries in this population. And this kind of really stood out. So Puerto Rican population is one of the, you know, the Caribbean island population. It has undergone multiple bottleneck events because of colonization and things like that actually resulted in a strong founder effect. So this region is very famous for a syndrome called Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome. It's an albinism. It's very prevalent. If you happen to go to Puerto Rico, it's very hard to miss. You will see almost like one in you know, every 10 person you meet will have will be like an albino. 
So this is like a disease caused, you know, like the gene was identified only after they learned about the disease. So it's caused, it affects your skin and it affects your eye. People go blind sometimes very early in age and then uh, people have bleeding problem and also people have like lung fibrosis. There is there is great coverage about this, you know, problem in Puerto Rico. So they often compare this, you know, pulmonary fibrosis condition as a ticking time bomb in the chest. So you don't know, like people sometimes who just travel on the road, just, just catch their chest and then fall down and they just die. So it's very common condition. And there, so this is like known for a long time. So it's like my interest is like, what other, you know, common conditions that we have because of this kind of a founder effect and things like that. There's like a few examples. And the recent one was from the 23 Me, where they identified, a, you know, like a gene called ITGA6, where heterozygous loss of function variants are associated with the huge risk effect on adult onset cancer. I think source ratio is like 12 or something. And also it has like a, impressive association on the age of onset 13 years earlier people who are heterozygous for that and interestingly this is like a dominant associations and the hit recessive association has a very different disease like some blistering of the skin some other conditions so it's i think it's it's some laminin associated gene or something it's very important for the cell surface addition and integrity and this kind of in some way affect the lens fibers but also when it happens like a complete deficiency, it also affects the skin. So it's very interesting. And, you know, like probably this is one important and we didn't know all these years and just using a very small set of population from the 23andMe, they kind of caught this gene, this association. That's like really very interesting finding. Yeah, I, I think that's a great one to end on. We've covered a huge amount of ground here, a number of both stories that reached a conclusion in the sense of they were discovered and then ultimately became approved therapies, although that story is still going as we try to understand how that drug is going to be priced, how access is going to be made available to the millions of people around the world who need it. We aren't going to cover that in this episode, but next part of this that you have to look forward to, we're going to continue the discussion around endogamous and, and consanguineous populations and some of the important findings this year. And we're also going to talk about some interesting, very early stage, rare variant discoveries and, and some other uh, GWAS discoveries. And, and finally, finish up with some of the highlights around complex trait genetics, some really interesting stories around tandem repeats, which long read sequencing and larger scale whole genome sequencing are starting to to shed some light on some of the last parts of the genome that we haven't been able to read. And then finally, we'll finish up with some predictions for the future. I think quite a few of your predictions last year came true, in particular one about these non-European population studies being a, a really big part of the story this year. So uh, stay tuned with us. We'll be back with part two in a separate episode that will be released a day or two after this one, just so we don't hit you with a three-hour episode in one go. But thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs>